Hello, welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonillo. On this episode, very happy to have on the podcast, Stephen Porges. Stephen is a distinguished university scientist at Indiana University. He's also the founding director of the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium. He's also a professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina and professor emeritus at both the University of Illinois at Chicago and the University of Maryland. He served as president of the Society for Psychophysiological Research and Federation of Associations in Behavioral and Brain Sciences. He's a former recipient of a National Institute of Mental Health Research Scientist Development Award. He is widely published in the field in many disciplines, and most notably, uh, back in the early 90s, he proposed the polyvagal theory, um, and that is what we talk about in his new book. Uh, he has many books, but the the latest book is called Our Polyvagal World, How Safety and Trauma Change Us. It's by him and co-authored with his son, Seth Borges. Uh, in the conversation, we start by talking about the importance of safety, um, why that's essential for the theory. We talk about the vagus nerve and the polyvagal theory. Um, we talk about why uh, RSA is important. Talk about the various branches, uh, since it is poly, so in terms of the vagus nerve and then the many outside of that, so various branches and social engagement system. Um, how polyvagal theory makes connections with neuroplasticity. How polyvagal theory works with trauma and co-regulation. Uh, practical and clinical uses. Some of the criticisms of the theory. And what the future holds for polyvagal uh, theory. I was very excited to to talk with Stephen. I mean, of course, someone that has developed a theory, has a lot of research behind it. It's always such an honor and a privilege to talk with someone that um, is so uh, well-regarded and well-esteemed and well-published. And he was very kind. He was very, very lovely. I, I greatly enjoyed the conversation. And really, you know, I think what was really helpful was we do talk about some of the criticism. And I feel I, after the conversation, I felt much better because hearing him describe um, the theory, describe where people kind of misunderstand things and really just try to explain it and what it's not. You know, some people take it, you know, into to other avenues that, you know, he says it maybe isn't as quite accurate. It was really helpful. It was really, really helpful uh, conversation that we had. And, and so I'm very glad that we did. As always, you can find this conversation and all the conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com, also on YouTube. So feel free to subscribe, follow, share with your friends, contribute uh, in those places. Uh, make sure you pick up his book. And uh, now I bring you Stephen Porges. I am here with Stephen Porges. Uh, Stephen, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm uh, greatly looking forward to uh, speaking with you. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm looking for an interesting hour with you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you've uh, you've written a book called Our Polyvagal World, How Safety and Trauma uh, Change Us. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's fantastic. It's great. And um, before we get into the book, into the theory and all the work that you've done, uh, just give us a kind of snapshot of who you are professionally, academically, and uh, what you're currently up to. Well, okay. I've been, I've been a faculty member since 1970, so that means I'm quite old now. But I was very young when <laughs> I started, so I, my first, my PhD is 1970, and I've been a faculty member since then. Uh, since about 2013, I've been really emeritus. I continue to do research and to write and give talks, but I don't run the large lab that I used to. So for decades, I had a large laboratory. It was federally funded, and I enjoyed the hands-on work of doing research. But I think mm -hmm. the reason I'm here is not about the early research. It's really what came after that. So by the mm -hmm. mid-1990s, I started to try to put all the ideas together that I had seen within my lab. And uh, I was stuck with a real basic problem. And that was this nerve called the vagus, this large nerve that's a cranial nerve coming off the, the brainstem and basically has major input on virtually every organ within your body. It regulates the heart rate. And I was studying newborn babies actually at GW and in the hospital mm. there and at mm. Georgetown. So I was doing work there. And I was looking at uh, basically babies' heart rates, when they go too slow, it's called bradycardia, and they stop breathing, the heart rate gets too slow, and it's potentially lethal. 
And I was studying a protective factor that was in the heart rate pattern, which was a kind of a respiratory rhythm that you could see in heart rate. And the heart rate would be basically quite variable and rhythmic or the variability mm. was real. So when they inhale, heart rate would get faster, exhale, heart rate would get slower. Now, both those patterns, the bradycardia, which was potentially lethal, and the respiratory science arrhythmia were basically mediated by the vagus. So now I was stuck with what I call the vagal paradox. How could the same nerve basically be an indicator of longevity, health, and prognosis, and also kill you? And I basically mm. delved or dove into the literature and started understand that the reason you had those two different parameters or, or response patterns was that they were really coming from two different parts of the brainstem. It was different. Basically, the vagus was a conduit and not a single unitary nerve. And we had been talking mm -hmm. about it and thinking about it in the wrong way. Instead, we should have been talking about it as a polyvagal system. And the interesting part is the part that comes from the back of the brain is more ancient evolutionarily. And when that part really goes into states of threat, we immobilize and shut down, we defecate and potentially pass out. While the, mm -hmm. the part that comes from the ventricle or front is actually merges with the nerves that regulate our face and our voice. So we basically mm -hmm. broadcast this warmth and state of our physiology in our voice and in, in our face. And it was just very confusing if you started thinking in terms of the vagus because it was far more nuanced. So that became polyvagal yeah. theory. And then the real transition, the important part was that when I started to tell the narrative of this evolutionary journey of the vagus moving from the back of the brain to the front of the brainstem, it became a journey of sociality of which mammals now had a regulation of their physiology and they use social behavior, meaning they broadcast their physiological state literally as invitations for others to come close to them like we talk to babies mm. or we talk to our pets. And mm. I didn't realize that this whole story had such relevance to trauma until I talked to a trauma meeting and actually it was a meeting run by Bessel van der Kolk. And I told this basic narrative of this polyvagal theory that talked about a vagus of shutting down. And what I didn't know at the time was I was describing the narrative of many individuals who had survived adversity and severe trauma. Mm. So you've already started to get into it, uh, what it is and everything. So we'll come back to that. I did want to ask, though, you, you start in the book, and, and I've read some of the other papers you've, you've written, about how it's centralized around this, this kind of notion. This will tie in with trauma, too. But this idea of, of safety, right? Why feeling safe is, is critical to physical and mental health and happiness. And so... How, why is that you find the, the central kind of uh, nucleus, if you will, for this? Well, let's say it's the core, the foundational principle of how we as social mammals survive. And we have to think about feelings are not optional or feelings of safety is not optional. It's obligatory. And what does a feeling of safety really require? And I think what we start to talk about in our culture are removal of threats. Now, that's not the same thing as safety. Safety requires our autonomic nervous system supporting health, growth, and restoration, literally supporting homeostatic functions. So if we throw mm -hmm. out words like stress or threat or anxiety and said, is my autonomic nervous system supporting health, growth, or restoration, or is it disrupted? We'd get to the same point because once it's disrupted, that physiological substrate does not support feelings of safety. It supports feelings mm -hmm. of threat hypervigilance, protection, and self-protection. Hmm. So obviously this is, there's some, as you kind of alluded to in the beginning, this you know idea of, of principle of safety, the vagus nerve, and then with trauma. Yeah. Um, you mentioned in the book, about, I, I think I have this right, that trauma is not necessarily living in the body, but more that we have these potentially traumatic experiences and I know there's obviously been lots of discussion on trauma. Could you elaborate yeah, on this? I, I actually, you start getting uh, this dialogue occurring in the world of trauma, like trauma is locked in the body or trauma is mm -hmm. confabulated up in mental images. I think there's mm -hmm. a misunderstanding of the neurophysiology of what regulates our body. Trauma mm -hmm. really is a retuning of the foundational survival circuits in our brainstem, very low in our brainstem. Those circuits 
regulate our viscera, the internal organs of our body, if those circuits are retuned to be defensive, uh, the literally the access of higher cortical structures that we love to think about creativity, uh, they're not available because our body is tuned into a chronic state of threat. And I think this whole understanding of where is trauma locked, basically think of our brain as hierarchically organized uh, with the brainstem being this narrow part of the triangle and the cortex being this large area. And the cortex Mm -hmm. takes information from the lower part of the brain and creates meaning or narratives. So, but the brainstem being not very big, doesn't have that many options. So it can either support our health growth or restoration, or it's now we're a defensive machine. We can't live in being that defensive machine forever because it's not metabolically healthy. So if we're in fight Mm. flight, it's too costly and our body then will shut down and that doesn't give us enough oxygen or, or metabolic resources to move. So we have two defense systems shutting down and mobilizing, and that's what polyvagal theory described through evolution. But we have this third circuit, which involves uh, the processing of signals of safety through intonation of voice, facial expressivity, gesture, proximity, that downregulate those defenses. So we literally turn off or inhibit our threat or defenses through these this has higher brain structures that are given permission to function when our body is not in a state of threat. Hmm. So let's, let's go back to uh, what you were starting to get into. So tell us about a little bit more the vagus nerve, what it is, where it comes from. You can dive into the kind of polyvagal aspect and this bi-directional neural superhighway. And then the RSA as well, and why okay. that's important. We'll, we'll, we'll try to go through that. But basically, <laughs> I, I don't really like to uh, discuss too much about the neuroanatomy of the vagus, but take it as a concept that you have a, a wire, you have a cable that's connecting your brainstem to all these organs of the body. And it's in the brainstem that the area of the brainstem is regulating the neural flow. So it's really both a surveillance system of your organs and a motor system regulating the organs. So this mm-hmm. feedback loop supports your health. And if it gets signals of threat, it basically turns off the health part of the feedback loop and says survival is most important. So the, the nerve contains the motor nerves coming from the front and back of the brain, some called the ventral and dorsal vagal pathways, and a massive sensory column that really occupies 80% of the vagal fibers. It's really the surveillance system of our internal bodily state goes through the vagus. So those are the feelings. And again, if we transition into the world of trauma, what are some of the symptoms? I don't feel my body. I don't feel inside me. Mm -hmm. So we've downregulated the feedback loops. And if we then start talking about uh, modern day culture and how does it accept bodily feelings, it says, Get over it. Don't feel that you need to operate. You need to think. You need to move. And what are we functionally doing? We're challenging the body's own feedback loops until pretty soon the feedback loops get dampened and we start getting these functional uh, medical functional disorders where there's problems in the organs, but the organs themselves don't have any pathology. And then the person is treated as if they don't have a real disease instead of being treated that their features are of a nervous system that is dysregulating the organ and that is really on a pathway to organ damage. So the question I have there with this, with this is, I think that there's, I mean, there's obviously evidence of many of the things you've just listed about the importance of the vagus nerve, but maybe one kind of rebuttal here would be like, well, the brain is involved in many things that are doing this, right? Yeah. Is it is it too much to say the vagus nerve is doing this much? Like, what well, about what the rest of the brain is doing? Okay, so first of all, we do not want to give agency to the vagus. Your point mm-hmm. is not only well taken, it's one that I share. It's very important. Mm-hmm. The vagus is merely a conduit. And once we see mm-hmm. it that way, we do not give it executive functions, the vagus did that. We are using a wire from the brainstem to the organ and that brainstem is connected interneuronally with higher level aspects of the brain. So we're communicating with that. 
And under certain states, communication goes top down very easily and bottom up very easily. And under different mm-hmm. conditions, there's literally shunting of resources for survival. So the communication between brainstem and higher brain structures is going to be compromised when you're in a defensive mode. So in a sense, your cortex gets turned off. So if you get angry, you're not going to be a deep thinker. So Mm. that part is really important to understand that. The other important point that is a direct response to your question is we have to think of the nervous system, especially the brain, as a hierarchically organized system. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? It means that on the bottom of it are foundational survival mechanisms and on the top are higher expansive creative cortical events. Our our science and our clinical world and our society tends to be very cortical centric. You know, we think everything Mm -hmm. is up in the cortex because that's Mm -hmm. what defines what is a human. As we move down Mm -hmm. to the brainstem, we start looking like virtually any other mammal. So the issue is we tend in our science to be very uh, focused on what makes us unique and different. But what we've changed that focus and said, we inherited, we have uh, a neurophysiology of the brainstem that is shared with, with virtually every social mammal. And the issue mm-hmm. is when that system gets locked into a state of defense, all the attributes of this wonderful big cortex get challenged, get compromised. So we have to think of things as hierarchical. And in polyvagal theory, that was literally borrowed from the neurologist. There was a neurologist by name of John Hewlings Jackson. And what he noted was that if you injure higher level aspects of the brain, the lower aspects become disinhibited. Well, polyvagal theory took that and shifted it to the autonomic nervous system and said, you have this social ventral vagus that is calming and we're on this wonderful calm state. That's the newest evolutionary uh, system. But if we pull that away, what's there? Fight flight. And if fight flight doesn't get us to a safe space, that gets pulled away and we shut down. So we follow our evolutionary history in reverse. And that's what Jackson said was dissolution. Polyvagal theory Mm. uses dissolution to structure hypotheses that can only be answered with the polyvagal theory. Mm. Now, you root a lot of this in the respiratory sinus arrhythmia. And I guess the question is, you can explain what that is, but why is that such a central feature for polyvagal? Well, actually, it's not. Okay, the it's not, okay. Is, it's, okay. No, but you know, it could be people may think it is because that was my life's research was in that area. Um, it is important because it provides you with a metric to literally evaluate the functioning of the ventral vagus. So its mm-hmm. value in respiratory science arrhythmia is the fact that our heart rate increases with inhalation and decreases with exhalation. And this was noted as long as the early 1900s as a way of identifying the vagal fibers that regulate the heart because they were noted to have this respiratory rhythm. So the point Mm -hmm. is that unambiguously, you can measure the ventral vagal influence on the heart by looking at respiratory science arrhythmia. It doesn't, it's so, it's only in a sense an evolutionary uh, coincidence or accident that we now have this ability to have a metric to literally test the hypothesis. Uh, or hypotheses driven, uh, developed or driven by the theory. But the theory is not dependent upon uh, respiratory science arrhythmia. So we have to understand the difference between a theoretical structure, which says there's this hierarchical system, and then being able to measure that newer inhibitory system. So we can now measure that inhibitory system. And when people lose the respiratory science arrhythmia, like the preterm babies, or a baby under stress, or even under anesthesia, uh, the ability to operationalize one's complex behavior becomes very challenged. Mm, Yeah. I I know that there's been, in in some of my research looking up, that there's been some studies that have shown that some of the connections between the RSA and other things, such as certain types of psychopathology, has been uh, mixed. And so well, it's just not, not as strong really. as we like it. I yeah. mean, it depends on the sources that you read. 
Sure. Uh, sure and sure. it also depends on the metrics that you use to define mm. or measure the vagal influence on the heart. And there are people who have basically used very, uh, I would say, weak metrics uh, mm. that would argue that it's not even a measure of vagal regulation. Yet it's mm. the strongest measure that you can get of in a non-invasive preparation of vagal regulation of the heart. So the literature is actually, I would say, if you looked at the thousands of articles, in a sense, looked at them, then respiratory sinus arrhythmia, which is a more a nuanced measure of heart rate variability, is highly related to, uh, let's say, clinical outcomes. The question that you're, I think I would agree with you is if you try to use it as a diagnostic for a mental health pathology, you're in trouble because mm-hmm. you're using a phenotype on one mm-hmm. level to compare with a phenotype on a level, another level. And I call this mm-hmm. psychophysiological parallelism. And polyvagal mm-hmm. theory makes no, uh, basically argues against psychophysiological parallelism mm-hmm. and really says that you, if you think more in terms of hierarchical systems, you'll be better off. So if you disrupt that ventral vagal circuit, then you're creating a platform for lots of disorders, including the there's a literature that is growing in the area of cancer showing Mm -hmm. that uh, vagal regulation of the heart is literally a buffer. So the outcomes Mm -hmm. of people who have low RSA, a low respiratory science rhythm, low heart rate variability are much poorer than those who have higher ones. Um, Mm -hmm. Because even cancer is a phenotype without really getting at the neurophysiological buffer of the system. So back to your point, don't think of physiological indices as diagnostic features for a psycho- psychological or psychiatric diagnosis, because it just won't work that well. No, that's great. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you clarified that because I, I was like, okay, well, wait, is it, is it this or is it this? I was trying to kind of parse it out myself, and I was like, okay, so that's so, very helpful. So, but there are two vectors there. There's a vector mm-hmm. of the sensitivity and precision of the physiological measure to measure the vagal regulation, and then on the other side, there's the dispersion of clinical features that go into diagnosis. So mm. it's like, you know, it's like, you know, I did a lot of work in the world of autism and I basically would say the diagnosis is of absolutely no value to me. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have a clinical relevance or mm-hmm. a relevance to get services, but it didn't right. provide right. me with enough information about the nervous system of the individual mm-hmm. that I was looking at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Sometimes it's not going to tell you necessarily what clinical interventions you should do. It's just a helpful heuristic in a lot of ways. So tell us about these various branches. You mentioned the ventral vagal complex. You talk about social engagement system. Talk about these components as well. Well, I would really start off by uh, describing what I call a a ventral a journey of ventral migration of various neurons in the brainstem moving from the dorsal area to the ventral area and what that mm-hmm. meant for a mammal because it defined the difference between mammals and their ancient extinct reptilian ancestors. So about Mm -hmm. 220 million years ago, the migration was sufficient enough that when those animals were born, they were already capable of sucking, swallowing, and breathing in a coordinated way. And that today still defines mammals. So Mm -hmm. it's, and to do that, you have to have this ventral vagus has to be coordinated with the respiratory rhythm or the respiratory drive system and has to be coordinated with laryngeal and pharyngeal activity for vocalizations as well. So Mm. we've been doing actual research looking at the impact of maternal voices, how prosodic they are on calming the baby. And the theory Mm. is really, uh, the polyvagal theory is that if your physiology is calm, your voice will be more prosodic and that prosodic voice now will be a signal to another nervous system to calm down. So we looked at the mother's voices uh, after the babies were clearly stressed using what's called the still face paradigm, which is developed by Edtronic, where the mother plays with the baby, smiles, and then freezes her face for a few minutes and then re-engages. And often the baby basically gets very dysregulated and then even tries to calm the mother. And then when the mother comes back into play, the baby might be really in tantrum. We found out that 
If the mother's voice was more prosodic, the baby's heart rate dropped at least 10 beats per minute and distressful Mm. behaviors dropped out. But if her voice wasn't very prosodic, but she's still vocalizing and engaging the baby, no effect on the baby's heart rate or their behavior. So Mm. it really was a documentation that the intonation of voice is this potent, genetically determined signal of safety that social mammals understand without having to learn. It's not a learned procedure. And we mm-hmm. not only do babies know what to do, but I would say that our pets know what to do when we talk to them with a prosodic voice. Mm. Do, do we do we see then this, you talked about the evolutionary story there. Are, are you saying that the this, this ventral vagus uh, uh, nerve, this pathway, is it is it only a mammalian thing, or do we no. see it in fish or no, amphibians see, or anything else? No, th- this is that ventral migratory journey. So it's mm. moving from the back of the brainstem. We still have that vagus. We call it the dorsal vagus, and it's the primary mm. regulator of our gut. It also mm. has some fibers to our heart and to our lungs, but it's primarily a subdiaphragmatic vagal circuit. But in the mm. migration ventrally, it connects. Mm interneuronally with the nerves that regulate our face. This is really mm. one of the most, I think, the most remarkable uh, evolutionary transition that could occur because what it enabled the mammal to do was to signal their physiological state by their voice because the laryngeal mm. and pharyngeal nerves which control our intonation happen to be vagal nerves. So it's, mm. it's like parallel the vagal regulation of the heart. When our heart is calm, what happens to our voice? So we have mm. this amazing ventral migratory uh, journey in which the heart, the regulation of the heart gets linked to the nerves regulating the striated muscles of the face and head, our voice, our facial expressivity. It creates this mm. interesting package of both the ability to respond okay, as a therapist you look at your clients, but you also mm-hmm. listen to them and you physiologically mm-hmm. react to them, whether you acknowledge it or not, based upon their facial expressivity and the intonation of their voices. Mm-hmm. Our bodies are wired to feel sick, to detect signals of safety in those experiences. Mm. So how, how much can we hang our hat on the role of the Vegas uh, system with you know, certain types of social uh, recognition in terms of, you know, affect and emotions and how, how do we, and even with coping with stress, how, how much can we hang our hat on that? Well, it's very, very helpful. I would say we can hang our hat on it by giving, uh, both having a little self-compassion and compassion for others, because if they're in physiological states of threat, uh, meaning their physiology is downregulated that ventral vagal circuit, they're going to have biases in how they react to others. They're going to see mm. threat in people's faces when they're neutral. So there'll be this mm. bias towards negativity or towards threat. Because if, if you're not physiologically in a safe place, your survival is really better if you detect threat when there is no threat from that person versus if there's versus the other way. You, you want to be overly cautious. And that's what our mm. nervous system does. And that, in part, explains why individuals on spectrum, like autistic spectrum, often make Mm -hmm. mistakes in the detection of people's affect using facial expressivity or even Mm -hmm. intonation of Mm -hmm. voice because their bodies tend to be, not everyone, but tend to be in a physiological state that is more defensive. Uh, And you can Mm -hmm. actually see that in many of them in terms of muscle tone, uh, even self-protective behaviors and flat Mm -hmm. facial affect. Those are projections of this social engagement system, which is regulated by this ventral vagal complex. And so we see it. What I'm really trying to say is that through this ventral migration, mammals, you don't need to put electrodes on them to measure their vagal tone. You just need to be a more astute individual to listen to their voice, look at their facial expressivity, and literally look at their muscle tone. So if the bodies Mm. get tight, that they're telling you what state they're in. You don't need mm. to ask them. Mm. Yeah, I, this was. I'm glad you brought this up because this is another question I had, and, and you, maybe we can use the the uh, folks with autism here as an example or, or something else. But 
We know from emotional theory and research, there's a lot of heterogeneity with emotions, right? We, we know this now, you know, and even though we might have the same kind of gross morphology in our brains, there's a lot of different densities we have with neurotransmitters and affect and motivational centers in the brain. How would you understand some of the kind of, uh, you know, variants that we see, whether with folks that have various disorders or with other different presentations? Well, I would, first of all, uh, emotion to me is, is a murky area. And I, I don't <laughs> like to use the term. I much rather go much lower in the brain and say, is the physiology in a state of threat or is it a state of safety? And mm. if you're in a state of threat, are you going to express a happiness? Are you going to mm. be exuberant? And the answer is those circuits get turned off. And what you tend to see is a domination of fear and anger of uh mm. And you can create a, an array or a, of emotional states that can be nuanced by different systems. But basically, uh, the the way of coding, I say traditional coding of emotions, facial expressivity or mm -hmm. intonation of voice for some, some of the systems. And basically, you can see those on a very physiological level. Facial expressivity becomes flat when a person's physiology is under a state of threat. And you see this in clinical settings. Uh, and you see this as a trajectory towards a wellness or healing when you deal with trauma from a flat phase to a more responsive, exuberant phase. So mm -hmm. the, the answer is, um, I'd like to first think about the adaptive survival mechanisms of being in a state of threat or a state of safety. And I'd like mm -hmm. to think of emotions the class of emotions that I'm very willing to experience is really emotions that sit on top of a physiology in the state of safety, including going on a roller coaster. Okay, so the issue is, and this is another example I use, that you, my uh, love of roller coasters, which I shared with my sons, was that you could have these massive visceral, visceral reactions within a constrained, safe setting which is really a wonderful exploration of one's own bodily experiences. Now, mm. it's very different about being on a, on a uh, roller coaster than jumping out of a window. But in a way, yeah. it's not. In a way, mm. your body is experiencing what it is to have that loss of gravity. And that, to me, was this remarkable uh, access to having that bodily feeling within a safe context. So it was a feeling but it wasn't a feeling of life threat or impending mm. doom. It was something else. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's, that's nicely put. I want to, I want to ask about the, the breathing aspects of things. Uh, we, we kind of mentioned this. I wanted to come back to it. Um, what do you, what do you think about how much um, the utility or the importance of breathing exercises are in terms of with the, the, the theory and is it is it going too far to say that breathing exercises have a significant impact on or are not with neuroplasticity in, in the brain? Okay, let's separate your questions or kind of like sure. unpack them a little bit. First, mm -hmm. breathing is really uh, a portal, a a, uh, a portal that we have to uh, uh, to basically self-regulate our vagus. So we know that during exhalation the vagal impact on the heart is much greater than doing inhalation. And mm. so we can, in a sense, calm ourselves down, utilize that knowledge as a toolkit of a deep inhalation and the slow exhalation. But if we start to make our inhalations longer and our exhalation shorter, we can move ourselves into panic. And as a therapist, you can see people when they get excited, they shift yeah. the ratios. So we do some of this automatically, but interestingly, breathing has a degree of voluntary input. So we can experience it. A lot of the breathing uh, uh, examples or breathing toolkits are extremely important. Okay, that was the first point. Now you have to lead me on mm -hmm. to the next part of your question. Well, how much of this is connected with the kind of neuroplasticity uh, and rewiring the brain and some of these jumps okay. that people make? okay. Of course, there are jumps, and there, there's no real test of those jumps. However, mm -hmm. we can build plausibility, and that's really where I sit. I love to hear people's speculations 
and I love to deconstruct them and provide a potentially plausible pathway. And the answer is that when you are calming the body down, meaning slower exhalations, you're providing a neurophysiological substrate through which synaptogenesis could occur more more frequently or more optimally. So neuroplasticity uh, is not going to be as optimal if your body's in a state of threat because the body has now re- repurposed the resources for defense. But neuroplasticity mm-hmm. implies growth and uh, synaptic uh, generation. So the issue is, on the most plausible level, a calm body is a better platform for neuroplasticity. And breathing can be related to supporting a calmer body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you tell us about these, um, this co-regulation. You mentioned this in the book. And there's these four aspects, uh, safety, proximity, contact, and bonds. Uh, talk about uh, co-regulation, um, talk about in- intimacy, oxytocin, talk about all these important features. Talk about this co-regulation. Okay, so again, we have to go back to the culture that you and I both live in, which <laughs> emphasizes self-regulation over and above everything else. Mm-hmm. And what polyvagal theory says, if you want self-regulation, the organism should have good experiences of co-regulation. It has to build the mental images of feeling safe with someone or somewhere. And what we learned through the world of really severe trauma and adversity is that many people never have that safe experience, even in their homes. So we learned that as children, they are unable to have the visualizations of being safe in the arms of another that get them through challenges. So they can't use the visual images that many of us would use to enable us to deal with day-to-day challenges. And so so co-regulation provides the ability to trust and feel safe in the presence of another. And Mm. what we have to realize is that's the cornerstone of everything in modern society, including business. The ability to trust another. We don't even need the word love because the body needs to trust another to give up its defenses. So co-regulation provides that opportunity for the physiology to move out of a state of threat and defensiveness. And Mm. when we deal with people who have serious adverse histories, you find out that they can't use human beings. They cannot be in the proximity of others to feel safe and to trust another, but they might do okay with horses and dogs or cats. Mm. It's, Mm. It's interesting that other mammals may fill that need because those other mammals, they don't have associations of injury with those other mammals. So the building principle is co-regulation. And I think, again, from the, the environment and society that we come from, co-regulation has often been called spoiling the child or you know all these other types of attributes have been given to it, as opposed to enabling the nervous system to build expectancies of safety and trust. Mm. So I want to I want to ask a little bit more practically here. Um, is there's the theoretical side, there's the the uh, neurological side of things. I guess the neuroscience piece of things. I guess clinically, um, how how can um, you know clinicians uh, use the theory in a way that is most accurate to what it's saying and what the research is behind it to help folks with things like trauma or other types of uh, disorders. Well- I would say there are two important points. And let's start off with uh, the understanding of physiological state as being an intervening variable. What that means is our physiological state determines our reactivity to uh, stimulus. Uh, so it's not an SR worldview. It's an S organismic, SOR worldview based upon our physiological state. So in clinical work, people want to argue clinical trials, which is really a cause and effect model without really focusing on the state of the organism, the autonomic nervous system at the moment of intervention. So it becomes important for therapists to both understand the physiological state their clients are in and also the physiological state they're in because Mm -hmm. they are broadcasting their own physiological state to their clients in their Mm -hmm. voice, the proximity and facial expressivity. And if they're not literally present and uh, co-regulatory with their clients, 
their clients are going to be detecting their behaviors as threat and the client will retract from it. The difficulty mm -hmm. comes because clients are often not reciprocal. So mm -hmm. the therapist now has to start learning that they're not getting back from the client what their nervous system wants or desires. Mm -hmm. And that can result in really being dismissive and trying to get the client out of the office because it's unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> and what it, what it, with this understanding, it creates a sense of compassion, both for the therapist, for self-compassion of understanding their own physiological state of discomfort, but also mm. the physiological state of discomfort that their clients are feeling. So it becomes mm. self and other compassion. And this is extremely important. The other part of it is not merely that intervening physiological state. But I think what therapists can gain from the theory is this ability to understand the physiological state of their clients from intonation of voice, from facial expressivity, and from gesture and even muscle tone. So they start to see their clients as either broadcasting threat or accessibility. And so mm -hmm. when they start understanding that when their clients can start expressing accessibility, they're in mm. a moment in a state of co-regulation. They need to build on that. So they need to mm. take those cues and work with them. Mm. Yeah, I find that I, I, it's very helpful what you're saying because I find that many times, and this might be out of um, uh, a type of ignorance of sorts, but sometimes I wonder if, are there ways in which the theory is maybe misapplied that some clinicians, without maybe knowing it, they're misapplying certain notions of it or not fully understanding or maybe it doesn't work with a particular group or, or people group or population. What do you say about, not that there's a right way per se, but that how is a, how can we have an accurate way of following the theory? I think you're, uh, I would say blending as many clinicians will do the theory with clinical practice. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. uh, the, the theory is not clinical practice mm -hmm. and the theory is a way of explaining the human experience and human behavior. And the theory gives clinicians an understanding of what they are doing in real time with their patients or clients. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. the theory is not a treatment model. The, I would yeah. say the beauty of the theory is that it's compatible with virtually every treatment model. And mm -hmm. because virtually every treatment model is about calmness, accessibility, and re-embodiment. So, it, it, so there are just different strategies of getting to the same point. And if, when you get to the point of a nervous system that is giving up its defenses, giving itself permission to be co-regulatory and accessible, you're on a journey of, of mental health, uh, positive mental health, and you're on a journey of a more positive life experience. So, mm. it, the, I, so literally, I find the question to me, I'm not saying it's not a question that I have heard, haven't heard before, but mm -hmm. it is a question that is not really why I'm here. I don't mean here on your podcast, but why I'm here. <laughs> the theory was <laughs> yeah, really you. to provide explanatory power for mm -hmm. real life experiences, to understand mm -hmm. mental and physical illness, and to understand journeys that would lead to more positive life outcomes. Um, mm -hmm. The application of it in terms of certain principles that can be used in in therapy are really quite general. And in a way, mm -hmm. they fit the intuition of everyone's nervous system. So I don't think that anything within the theory is a violation of our own intuition about how we would like to be treated or how we would like mm -hmm. the world to be like. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's I'm, again, it's a wonderful answer because this is a question that I've heard a lot. You know, I, I, you know, I have clinicians that will tell me these things and I'm like, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I can ask Stephen myself and then see what he says. But I, I, find, I find the same thing. I mean, how I was trained and what I tell, you know, students and supervisees is you have to have a, a, a framework, a theory, and you can use whatever clinical interventions you yep. want and should in some ways. But, you know, a solid theory or framework is really important. And so, you know, you're very commiserate with what you're saying is that I think there is a really good importance from the theory of how do we not forsake or, or miss the physiological aspects of what's going on for people cognitively, emotionally, et cetera. The physiological aspects are another source of data 
telling us something is happening or going on and how to then, you know, how you want to explore that clinically is, is up to each individual clinician. So yeah. I, I think your answer is great. That's a great one. Well, I, I think the physiology is really the flag of accessibility for therapy. I talked about mm. uh, what I call an active and a passive pathway. The passive pathway is really the contextual setting that you set up for your client, how you relax them, how you create accessibility. Mm -hmm. But the active pathway is the therapies that you do, you, basically your right. work, what you're trained to do. <laughs> and right, the answer right, right. is, if you can get that physiology to be more accessible, calmer, less defensive, then you can do your work. And that's what mm -hmm. polyvagal theory is literally, that's the intention of it in bringing it into the world of mental health providers. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, just a, a kind of a short question here. So, you know, as if with anything, I mean, there's obviously you've had your fair share of critics and things like that. What have you, I guess, uh, thought about that over the years of people that might criticize it? This is very interesting to me. And I just finished a paper that just came out last month. It's called a, it's called vagal paradox of polyvagal solution. And in uh -huh. the paper, I basically, uh, write about the criticisms at the end of the paper. I didn't even want to do that. But the answer is that the primary critics of the paper have totally misinterpreted the theory, not only misinterpreted, misstated it and created straw man arguments. And that can really kind of like, let's say, tick you off because I don't of mind course, people yeah. arguing with me. But when they tell me that the theory says something that it never said, then mm. you really can't argue that point. You end up in this loop of trying to re-educate. If they don't want mm. to be re-educated, they keep repeating the same uh, falsifications of the theory, misrepresentations. And it's mm. not just one time. It was multiple times the same people. And it's been kind mm. of their agenda in life. Now, I, I think in a way they believe they're right, but they're so, let's say, angry at the theory that they can't read the theory. So it's literally <laughs> almost a validation of polyvagal theory of reflecting their inability to process the information because mm. they're saying things that are just not accurate about the theory. Mm. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's been going on for several years and mm -hmm. I basically decided I would re I would write a re a re uh, an update of the theory and mm. uh, basically outline what they were saying was wrong. Now, interestingly, mm. the paper came out in August, which is last month. And it's really, I would say, it's been wildly successful in terms of downloads. And, mm. you know, and so it's being read. And I hope it provides people with literally the information to deal with these criticisms that don't have any validity. It's not like I'm against criticism, because I think criticisms can refine and build a better theory and better model. But criticisms that inaccurately represent the theory don't serve anyone. They just, in a sense, mm. muddle the area. And mm. so I've, I've basically been, I've been upset by this because I didn't want to, in a sense, shine headlights on those that uh, sure. misrepresent because you start creating a different type of traction in that world. And mm -hmm. I finally mm -hmm. just said, here are, here are the misrepresentations and here are the accurate statements. And it, this is a straw man argument. Let them let them deal in a straw man world. I, I don't mm. want to be there. Mm -hmm. no, no, that's totally fair. I think that's great that you gave the kind of uh, reanalysis of this. I, I found that when I when I've heard other people talk about it, uh, I, I have the 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 worry on the opposite way. I always get worried when people um, misapply it, maybe with good intentions, where they say, "Well, like, I can use the theory for everything and for this and this and this," and it's like. Yes, maybe, but I think you maybe there's a misunderstanding here of a little bit of what I I mean, the little bit I know about it and and people kind of go off to the races with it and misapply it maybe in different ways than, than it was originally intended or, or used for. That's where I guess I get sometimes worried about it. Well, Less so of the people that are moaning and complaining about inaccuracies here or there. That's <laughs> that's sometimes no, maybe but fair, but the, a little silly. There's certain generalizations that we can make. And if we start off by saying a nervous system that's in a calm state is a different nervous system than one that's in a uh, basically locked into a state of threat. And if we talk about calm or safe versus threat, what, what are the emergent properties of behavior that come from that? So it impacts on things like education and, and basically work performance, 
on social relationships. It has tremendous impact on the environment in which medicine is practiced. Because what is medicine practice? Practice in a threatening environment. And so it's mm. very difficult to really get a good clinical assessment of a person under a chronic state of threat. So mm. there's a lot of applications. And what I have been most interested in is I, I wanted to literally give the principles out there with a theory that really describe uh, the evolutionary, let's say, the journey towards sociality that changed the reptiles into a, did change reptile mammals became a, a species, a vertebrate species, through which co-regulation and sociality uh, meant survival. And mm. it not, not only meant survival, it enabled the nervous system of social mammals to give up their defenses for a finite period of time so mm. that it could really heal. And this mm. is the way that humanity has dealt with severe uh, intrusions and challenges by, through the sociality of a few trusted individuals in the lives of others. And what we start finding out in the clinical world is the disruption of that developmental trajectory in individuals who are literally threatened and severely challenged in early life results in a total retuning of an organism that is literally locked into states of threat for potentially decades. So I guess the, the the kind of the last question I have here for you is, you know, you, it's a it's a you know wonderful you know theory, and there's been a lot of research behind it. At this moment, where do you want to see the research go with this? Where do you want to see it be taken? Where what kinds of really good studies do you want to come out that really kind of give, you know, lots of good you know replicability or or other things with different populations? Where do you, where would you like to okay. see it go? I guess. So this is a great question because it really ask the question of, of how is the theory tested? And, and which really goes back to what is the theory? So the research that I've been doing over the past couple of decades is really uh, looking at the intervening variable, physiological state. So like even looking at that and also trauma history and how that predicts even reactions to COVID uh, become extremely important. So we are looking at is physiological state a mediator of reactions to challenges? That is in the coin, I would say, the coin of the realm. And those studies are really quite powerful. It even shows that adversity history uh, predictions to outcomes are relatively small compared to predictions that go from adversity history into autonomic state and then to outcome. So the meaning that you have a retuned autonomic nervous system is really becomes the predictor of outcome. So in the world of trauma, people are very event or trauma oriented as being causal. Polyvagal theory is saying, yeah, that's it contributes. But the contribution to outcome is really if the autonomic nervous system got retuned, repurposed to become mm. locked in mm. states of threat. That's powerful mm. in terms of how yeah. we treat individuals. In mm. fact, we looked at data during the first wave of COVID being spring of 2020 and yeah. looked at uh, basically clinical symptoms in uh, 1,700 people who did not get COVID, but looked at worry, depression, and anxiety. And trauma history mapped into, uh, literally mapped into autonomic regulation. They were more dysregulated with more trauma history. But the mm. path, the statistical path or flow, uh, correlational model is a mediational model. So trauma me was the effect of trauma was mediated by subjective views of their own autonomic nervous system. But the important take-home point was when we looked at the hundred individuals who got COVID in this first wave of, of close to 1,800 people, if they had virtually no adversity, they didn't get COVID. Mm. If they had high levels of adversity, virtually all of them got COVID. So we're looking at 100 in a population of 2,000. And if they had above a certain cutoff, it was like 75% of them got COVID versus zero. So it was quite interesting in the sense of thinking of adversity history as being a pre-existing condition. And of course, if you take adversity history and then ask the question, what's their autonomic state? You have much, much stronger predictors of being in terms of outcome. I think those are the types of hypotheses that become useful 
And mm. they're really linked to the other uh, feature of the theory, which is that if you look at what, what does uh, trauma or adversity or challenge do to autonomic state, it triggers a dissolution of moving the individual's physiological state into a older circuit, moving them out of that ventral vagal circuit into a more fight flight or a shutting down. That's hmm. Jacksonian principle of dissolution. And it's that principle of dissolution that generates the hypotheses that contest polyvagal theory. And you know, it's it's really those studies that look at that have been really remarkably consistent. Yeah, no, that's 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 fabulous to hear, especially obviously you know kind of research with with trauma I, I work. Think, I think that's great. Let me let me uh, step in again in saying mm-hmm. I think if people are asking for questions about do therapies that embrace or uh, think that they're polyvagal informed are those tested? I I don't know. See that mm-hmm. I don't even view that as my realm. So my realm is. <laughs> uh, that whether or not the hypothesis of uh, related to dissolution results in poor outcomes, we're doing a study, and I'm, I will have to see how it's coming, on basically it's uh, trauma therapy using mm-hmm. the uh, intervention I developed, the safe and sound protocol, as an ad- adjunctive intervention with uh, normal treatment. So there's normal treatment, and then this and what they were finding when I last looked at the data was accelerated outcomes. Outcomes, uh, basically improvement became uh, accelerated, which would make mm-hmm. sense because the safe sound protocol was targeted at making the physiology more accessible, making the person's state more accessible. And I think mm-hmm. clinical trials applying uh, interventions that are targeted at physiological state making the person more physiologically accessible, more resilient, will uh, be associated with more accelerated positive outcomes. Mm, yeah, it's, 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 it's exciting to see. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of good dissertation studies out there waiting <laughs> to happen. So, <laughs> Well, the book is called Our Polyvagal World, How Safety and Trauma Change Us. Um, where is the best place to uh, find your work and research and all the places you want to point people to? Okay, I would point you to Polyvagal Institute, which is our not-for-profit institute, um, which was founded really to uh, help disseminate and, uh, the principles of polyvagal theory. It's a website that does online and live conferences, and uh, nice. it's, it's to create a community of those in various disciplines who are interested in polyvagal theory and to create networking so that they can utilize the theory and expand its principles in, in both research and clinical and educational and medical practices. So that's, that, that's the primary one I would direct you to. I also have a website, but that's called, that's polyvagalinstitute.org, one word. And my own is stephenporges.com, I guess. <laughs> well, it's uh, this was such a, a wonderful conversation, Stephen. I'm, I'm really happy that we had it. Um, I got to get my own things kind of uh, clarified and things I had been thinking about, and the book was great. And so this was just a win all around, and I was very, very pleased that we we had the conversation. And uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm a big yeah, uh, admirer me, of the work you do. Thank you. Let me just put a word in for my son, who's the, my co-author, Seth. Mm-hmm. Is Seth's voice. Seth is a uh, I would say a brilliant uh, journalist and filmmaker. Uh, I mm. use the word brilliant only after he worked, did the book with me because he kind of like uh, <laughs> totally shocked me uh, mm. with his, I would say, fluidity of polyvagal uh, mm. in polyvagal mm. concepts. And because he wasn't my student, my older son has a degree in, uh, who, he's a professor, but Seth is the journalist and he's mm. the filmmaker. And I was just shocked by what he knew wow. and, and, and the language that he could use to communicate with people. And I think that is really what makes the book a good book is that it reaches people. It's not complex. It's not uh, heavy like my science-oriented books. Uh, it has clarity of thought. And, mm-hmm. and you know, he had – it's just brilliant. So I'm really yeah, no, it's it, it's. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned it. It's uh, it's um, very accessible. The book is very. Yeah. Accessible. I mean, I could I could give this to a relative that you know has no training in, in psychology or anything, and they could 
definitely get all the concepts. Yeah. So um, it's it's definitely well uh, well yeah. written and put together. Well, so. the the interesting part is, you know, it's a lot of his voice. But when I had it read back to me, I thought I was saying it. You know, <laughs> it was like, well, I, you guys I, are I related. Was, <laughs> I, I was I was really uh, saying, how did this occur? How could he <laughs> co op my voice? So you know, I I really nice. am so proud of him doing that. So that's nice. That's nice. Well, well, big, big thanks, uh, Stephen. This was a, a, such a delight, and um, I, I, uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you, Xavier. I appreciate the time, and enjoy the rest of the day. Yes. <laughs>